just to start us off, I want to tell you what we were thinking about when um, we were deciding on a series for this semester. Um, we wanted to think about how we can continue encouraging one another to develop uh, healthy, mature relationships here in Boundless um, and throughout the whole of our congregation here at TBC. You might remember if you were here over the summer, um, I taught a message on seven qualities of biblical friendship uh, with a similar goal in mind. But during that, I found that the one another's of Scripture, they're called, um, they're key to our friendships as believers. Um, these specific direction commands God has given us um, regarding how we should relate to one another in the body of Christ. But there's so many of them, um, I ended up going a different direction for that message. And, uh, you know, we have serve one another, pray for one another, rejoice with one another, admonish one another, and not to mention love one another. So for this semester, uh, we're going to be learning about several different um, one another commands that we believe are crucial for um, a healthy body life here in the church. Um, And we're going to be looking at what they mean, um, what God says we should do, and look at some practical examples of how we can uh, how we can get to uh, cultivate these uh, more strongly in our lives. The goal is that the goal of this is that we would be faithful friends to one another um, and love just as Christ has loved us. So the title of our series is "Faithful Friendship: Cultivating Christ-like Love." And I want you to know that. Faithful friendships in the Christian life are joyful and they're an incredible gift from our gracious God. Think about the deepest friendships that you have. These are built on love and unity, and they grow deeper and deeper all the time as you live life. You get to know one another's background at first, likes, dislikes over time, and you bear one another's struggles and rejoice in each other's. You stand trials together. You share major life events and even the daily grind. But true friends, um, one thing we love about true friends is they're faithful to speak the truth to you, even if that means offending you, because they care more about health of your soul than that you're happy with them all the time. So this kind of companionship is something that God has ordained for us, and it is meant for our joy, and it's a great way to praise him. But let's say you're hearing this and you're thinking, but what about the bad part of friends, the hard parts, when a friend fails to remain by your side in that hard time, or when they're insensitive to your heart, in an area of that's a particular struggle for you, or when a friend gossips about you, or maybe do some other evil against you, and it's hard to forgive them. Or what if uh, you do evil to them, but then they refuse to forgive you? Friendships in the body of Christ are also a place that we can experience hurt and tragedy, but this is just because of our sin. Does that mean that it's not worth our pursuit? Does that mean we should be pulling back and not give too much of ourselves to Friendships are full of blessing and hardship, but it's all for our good. So whether you're not sure about this faithful friendship thing, or you're eager to become the best friend that you can be, I want to begin by sharing two convictions that I think will get us into gear for our series. So the two crucial convictions for faithful friendship. The first of these is that Christians are inseparably united to Christ and one another. They're inseparably united to Christ and one another. Every single Christian is united to Jesus Christ, our spiritual head, and our spiritual life. The Apostle Paul in Romans 6, 5 states, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection. And in Ephesians 1, 3-14, Paul describes the blessing of believers, the blessings that believers receive by being in Christ, a phrase he uses numerous times throughout the letter. In Christ is how the biblical authors refer to our union. 
Um, and what makes our union so significant is that it's the basis for our identity. So before, we were sons of disobedience, slaves to sin, children of wrath, people without hope in the world, God said. But our union with Christ has given us a new identity as children of God who walk in the good works he prepared for us. And I'm sure you've heard 2 Corinthians 12.20, which says, As it is, there are many members, yet one body. Christ church is full of a diverse array of people from all sorts of backgrounds, yet we have been reconciled to one united body. We share in the same spiritual life, the same hope, the same Lord. We are inseparable members of Christ's body together. So that's our first conviction. Our second conviction is that Christians are called to fellowship in the local church. We've heard a lot about this in recent from Pastor Clay when talking about prioritizing the local church. But here I want to emphasize that fellowship in the church is where the shared identity from our union with Christ is lived out. It's where we see it day to day. Pastor Clay also explained to us that fellowship in the Bible refers to sharing in something together. So for Christians, our fellowship is motivated by our identity and our eternal life in Christ to cultivate deep, abiding relationships to one another, with one another. We should be sharing every aspect of our lives together, not just show up on Sundays or go our separate way the rest of the week. He's made us a family and one body to live life. In 1 John 1.3, the Apostle, uh, Apostle John talks about what God's intent is for fellowship. We fellowship with Christ, do we not? We strive to come day in and day out. We pursue this relationship with him because of the work of the gospel in our hearts. It's not optional. We're called to it. Now, to pursue, now we're also called to pursue genuine fellowship with one another in the same way we pursue this fellowship with Christ. But if you're still not convinced about this dedicated familial relationship that we have in the body, or maybe it just seems odd to you to think of other people in the church this way. Write down Matthew 12, 46 through 50, and I want you to read this uh, when you get home. In this passage, Jesus reveals that he thought of born-again believers as the most significant relationships in his life, even more so than his blood relative. So as we get into today's, and that's, that was Matthew 12, 46 through 50. As we get into today's one another, I want you to look around you, think about these people as your family whom God has called you to abiding fellowship and friendship in Christ. They're the people that you're going to be spending all of eternity with. So these are our two convictions, that we have an inseparable union with Christ and one another, and we are called to an abiding fellowship. The reason I spent the time on this, again, is because I think if these truths don't come alive for us, it's going to be hard for us to really apply the one another's in our series. So the moment you've been waiting for, our first one another command. Today, we're going to be going over loving one another. If we're going to practice the one another's, then we make sense. We have to start here, right? Love is the guiding principle of the Christian life. We're called to be imitators of Christ, loving as he loved us. And today, we're going to be learning about loving one another by answering three questions. Our first question is, what does it mean to love? What does it mean to love? When we think of love, love described in God's word, our mind is probably flooded with passages. God has much to say about his love. There's John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Or maybe Romans 8.35-39, Who shall separate us from the love of, in, of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. 
In all these things, we are more than conquered through him. who. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor present, things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. Or maybe Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive to with Christ. God's love for his children is so evident, and he wants us to receive it and bask in it. It's our comfort, our hope, our strength, our joy, and our peace. But in asking the question, what does it mean to love? So in asking the question, what does it mean to love? We have to start with God. 1 John 4 teaches that God is love, and love is from God. He's the only source of love. And since people are born with a sin nature, slaves to sin, and rebels against God, it means we're born incapable of loving in ourselves. Apart from God, there can be no true love in our life. We have to go to God and know him if we're going to know what true love looks like. The letter of 1 John has lots to say about love. So let's turn there together. We'll go to chapter 3, verse 16. Here John says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay our, down our lives for the brothers. We see the love of God on display in that Christ laid down his life for us, us being the church. This verse has very significant implication for our learning to love. One is that by Christ laying down his life, he made the way for us to know true love in our experience. His love can become personal. A second way is that, second implication is that we now have a model of the greatest, most perfect love that there is. Through Christ's sacrifice, we come to know love in our experience, and we have our ultimate example. Adding on to this, you can look at over to chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Here John writes, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus Christ, while we were sinners, showed his immeasurable love for us and laid down his divine life on the humiliating altar of a Roman cross, shedding his infinitely precious blood and resolving to let the righteous, infinite wrath of God towards sin to be poured out on himself. All this so that we could have life in him and we could abide with him now and forever, knowing more and more his great love for us. So if we were going to summarize what it means to love, we could say it this way. To love is to be willing to set aside self for the good of others, no matter the cost. This is the example we've been given in Christ. Fulfilling the mandate to love is always going to look like setting ourselves aside. It always costs us something. It's never easy. But this is the beginning and end of pursuing faithful friendships in the body of Christ. All the one another's that we're going to study this semester flow out of love. And without genuine love, it's all meaning. It's all vain striving. So now that we have our definition of love in mind, Let's look at our next question. Why should we love one another? Some of you might be thinking, Chet, what kind of question? This is a question a child could answer. If Christ loves us, we need to love others. Duh. But I think what makes it obvious to us in a lot of ways is just that when God gives us a new, gives us a new heart, then this is a natural response for us. But then I think we can forget that God gives us many, many reasons in his word as to why we should love, many motivations. So I want to consider, why do we have an obligation to love? What makes love a worthy person? The answers to these questions will provide us the motivations we need to fuel our love in action. Our first few reasons 
for loving one another come from Christ's mandate in John 13, verses 34 and 35. You can turn there with me. In John 13, we've just read about how uh, Jesus and his disciples had the Passover supper together. And then here, um, they're going out as Jesus makes his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. He says to his disciples, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Reading that, some of you might pick up on the fact that uh, 1 John 3.16, which we just read a minute ago, um, is sort of like a summary of John's, um, what John writes here, stating Jesus commands his disciples. So our first motive that we learn from this is that love is Christ's commanded. Love is Christ's com- We should be ready to strive for love because it's commanded by Christ our Lord. John writes in 1 John 3.11, For this is the message you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. When we receive the gospel and put our faith in Christ, the first command and natural step of obedience for us is to love, just as Christ loved us. So let us do this because our Lord expects it of his disciples. Our second motivation is similar. Love is an obligation. And we see this in two places in 1 John. Chapter 3, verse 16 says, As Christ laid down his life for us, we ought to lay our lives down for the brothers. And in chapter 4, verse 11, it's written, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The language here is that John is using is one of obligation. It's one of indebtedness. Christ's love doesn't give us an option. It impels us to love one another. It's because his love is so great and we are so undeserving. What comes to my mind when I think of indebtedness in this way is the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. The servant with an unpayable debt pleads to the king. And the king makes his mercy known by clearing the debt. But then that same servant turns around and imprisons another servant for not paying him back for an even smaller debt. We can be much like this servant when we don't strive to love and when we don't strive to love one another in the church. Cheapen the mercy and the love shown us by Christ our King. So let us behold God's love and see we have no option but to love one another. Third motivation to love is love is spirit-empowered. Love is spirit-empowered. Christ alludes to this when he calls his commandment to the disciple a new commandment. The thing is, it, it wasn't really new. Even under the old covenant, God's people were commanded to love him and to have love for their neighbor. But the new covenant marked the beginning of a people who God had granted his spirit so that they could love from the heart. In our union with Christ, we have the spirit and we always have the power to refuse sin and to walk in obedience. And this should motivate us to be incredibly hopeful when loving one another's, when loving others gets hard. And as you know, it often does get hard. But Christ has given us his spirit so that we can love in thought, word, and deed in any situation. Now, as we're looking at motivations, um, the next few motivations will be staying in 1 John. Um, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and you can turn there. A main theme of this letter um, provides us an incredible fourth motivation to love. And it's that love increases our assurance. When Christ-like loves, love becomes more and more the pattern of our life, so should our assurance that we really belong to Christ and that he has saved us. 1 John 3.10 states, By this is it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. He goes on in verse 14 to say, 
we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brother. Whoever does not love abides in death. John is crystal clear that loving and laying down our lives for one another is the mark of a born-again believer. If we love, we know we can know and be assured that we are children of God because real love is from God. And I know we all can get discouraged about this at times. Sin is deceptive. It weighs us down. Sometimes we think, if Christ had really changed me, would I still stumble and fall? Would I still be so selfish, so unloving? Be assured that selfless, sacrificing love for Christ's sake wouldn't even be a consideration if Christ had not saved us. As we continue to reject sinful desires and lay down our lives out of love for others in the church, we gain more and more confidence that he has really worked in our hearts. Now, don't misunderstand me. Jesus' work on the cross is always our ultimate grounds of salvation. He is our only hope, our only Savior. But our experience of assurance grows when we obey him and when we love in this way. But if Christ's love has never motivated you and doesn't mark the thoughts, words, and deeds of your lifestyle, you shouldn't have assurance that you're really a Christian. If Christ had raised you to life in himself, then his love would characterize your life in some way. And as John says, the one who does not love abides in death. If you're still dead in your sins and needing to be born again, Christ calls you to trust in him for the forgiveness. Bring your sins to the light. Confess them. Turn away from them. And you can know the immeasurable love of Christ today. Experience new life in him. For our fifth motivation, I have the fruit of love perfected. Some of you uh, might be a little mad at me about my PowerPoint here, but you can tell me how I could have put love first later on. Um, the fruit of love perfected. We look at 1 John 4.12, and he says this, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. God has another goal in his love beyond us just knowing it on a personal level, and that's gospel witness. He is the invisible God, and no one has ever seen. But our sincere love for one another in the church puts his love on display for all to see. Our love for one another makes the glory of God visible to those around us. When we serve one another, forgive one another, encourage one another, these are tangible demonstrations of the reality of the God of love. When we love one another, love attains its perfect end. Now, I had this truth in your heart because love often looks and feels very ordinary, but it is supernatural in reality, and it brings God so much glory in the world. Our sixth and final motivation is a fullness of joy that comes from love. We can have joy-filled fellowship with one another. John wrote his letter in 1 John wanting to remind the church of the message of eternal life in Christ that had been given to them, the message they first believed and that compelled them to live a life of love. And when he brought this to mind, he did so so that they would have fellowship with him. And he did this so that their joy may be complete. A life of love will lead to joyful fellowship in the body. And we ought to rejoice at the many opportunities there are and that God gives us to love each other each day. And we should praise God uh, when he uses us this way. And others, then they can, as they see our love as a manifestation of God's love. So if we want to summarize our six motivations here, we could say that we're obligated to love one another and we should do so eagerly with hope and expectation of the glorious fruit God will produce through it. And this brings us to the final question we're going to answer. We know what love is, and we see why we must love, but what should we do? How can we strengthen love? I've already shown you a number of passages that fuel our hearts and deepen our convictions to love. 
And these, but what I want to show you here is a few practices that can help us to put on Christ-like love. So if you're taking notes, you might want to put a big star next to it because they can help us make massive headway in boldly and faithfully loving one another. First off, I have choose faith over feelings. One of the biggest threats to love in my life, and yours as well, is the lie that if we, we have to feel it to do it. If we don't feel a certain way, then we can't act in obedience, can't act in love towards that person, can't set ourselves aside. To illustrate how this plays out in, my, in our hearts, I'll use myself as an example. A situation I commonly face, uh, where I've commonly faced the choice between faith and feelings, is the time frame between when my workday ends and when my evening studies begin. This is the time that I catch up with my wife at the end of the day. We eat dinner together, and if there's any chores that I need to do or she needs me to do, um, we'll do that together. And though I try to prepare my heart for this time, there are many days where I find myself exhausted from studies or work, and I want to come and sit down and have just a mental break. Maybe, but maybe my wife is eager to talk and have my full attention after not seeing me all day. My feelings are often not ready to make them towards love. But Christ has granted me the ability to live by faith, by his Holy Spirit, and not to live or by how I feel. Another situation that I face, even this week, is when I've got a deadline coming, uh, whether that's a sermon or a class assignment, and not as much time as I would like to meet it, I don't feel like doing anything extra for anybody. Those are the feelings that I have in my heart. And it's pretty ironic because I'm standing here teaching a sermon and loving one another. Um, so on, even on numerous occasions this week, the Lord is testing me and whether I would trust how I felt, busy, overwhelmed, or if I would trust him with these unexpected interruptions as opportunities to love. Some of them I can say that I stood by his grace, but others I didn't. I have to seek his forgiveness for that. We need to know that when we do make decisions solely based on our feelings, these are acts of we are more willing to trust ourselves than to trust God. Instead, we must put our faith in what God says is true and then do what is right. For me this week, that was, looked like serving my wife by trying to give her my total attention or giving 100% effort to meet the need of a brother and serve him, even when I felt very busy myself. Sometimes our feelings will align with how God expects us to live and act, and that is a wonderful thing. But the weakness of the flesh does not always allow this. And so to strengthen our love, we must choose faith over feelings. Next up, I have refuse fear. Refuse fear. Of all the many threats to love I could think of, fear kept coming up. If we look at 1 John 4, verse 18, John writes, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. First John is written super concisely, and I think that he's singling out fear in contrast to love here for a reason. It's at the root of so many sins. This is because man is designed by God to live in fear of him alone and to live with reverence and awe for him, considering him in everything that he does. But man is born in sin and unbelief. He does everything in fear of himself. How will this affect me? How will this please me? How will this empower me? How will this fulfill me? And as Christians, sin doesn't control us anymore, but we still battle fear like this. Fear of anything that isn't God is the primary evidence of unbelief that remains in our hearts. And if we allow fear to gain a controlling foothold, it will cripple our ability to love. Fear is completely self-focused and self-obsessive. It's the polar opposite of true love. And like I said, it's linked to so many sins. Lust, jealousy, covetous, irritation, indifference, strife. So let's take one example 
and talk it through. Uh, for example, the connection between uh, fear and anger. So let's say uh, one day this week you begin to fear because your car broke down again and it put you behind on that paper you need. Now all you can think about is how hard this is for you, how you, want, you might not get it done on time or you might not be able to do it as well as you wanted. Your thoughts are getting wrapped up. Then, later, you and your roommate are going to head over to campus to study. You're waiting in their car and waiting and waiting and waiting, and then they finally come out. What's up? What's going on? Sorry, I was combing my hair. What? <laughs> are you kidding me? I mean, you knew when we were leaving. This was the plan. You were just in there watching TV. You couldn't be ready on time. Can't you see how much I've got going on? I need to get to school and get on this paper. Can you see how fear is at the root of this? Your only concern is fear about not getting the paper done instead of love and patience. And you do evil to your roommate in anger just because they wasted five minutes of your time. Now, whenever you experience a situation like this, I want you to be thinking how sinful fear be connected. Ask yourself, what am I afraid to lose? Whatever you fear losing is going to be something your heart has made an idol of in that situation. It's something you're willing to sin to get or to sin because you're not getting Like in our illustration here, we want this thing to get our assignment done, but that's not the idol. We want to get the assignment done because doing so will bring us and make us feel more in control of our life again. So what you really fear is losing peace, control. These are the idols. So in this situation, we would need to confess this to God and be reminded of his faithful love and that we can't be separated from his and his good purposes for us. And even when we're behind on school or a work project and another inconvenience comes our way, we have no excuse not to continue showing love to others and no excuse to fear. We have to repent of this and turn from in faith-filled And we have God's spirit like we said in our motivation, to help us do this. So you see, we must refuse fear when it arises and put it away from it. In contrast to this, our next point uh, gives us a righteous attitude uh, in contrast, and that's be self-forgetting. If you really struggle to love, finding yourself fearful about many things, start cultivating a heart like this that is self-forgetting, that joyfully counts the cost to self, that counts honoring Christ and loving God's people of greater worth than our vain idols. I like to use this phrase self-forgetting because it really helps me be reminded of the goal, not to think of myself in any of my daily activities. It reminds me I don't have any rights, as we're often tempted to think we do. But we were purchased, and we were redeemed. Our life belongs to Christ, now, and we should live for him and for others. It's a high bar, but it's worth striving for, and he'll help us do this all along the way. We want our life to be one where we follow in his footsteps, doing nothing out of selfish ambition, but in humility, counting others than ourselves. To do this practically, you could take some time today or this week and think about small ways you can practice setting yourself aside for others. One of these might be doing something um, with uh, greater eagerness and intentionality than just around uh, your, your room on campus or your apartment or if you live with your parents at home. Um, so like making a habit of taking the trash out for them, um, for your roommate. Serve in a small, unseen way. And do this, not thinking of yourself, how busy you are, how it's not a fun task to do, but think of others and think of Christ in the process. Serve in the church in unseen ways. Ask who cleans up the coffee each week from the Sunday school classes in Boundless. Or who makes sure that the children's classrooms are not still a mess. You know, there's not 
crumbs all over the floor and um, things like that. These are real needs in the, in the church. And, uh, you can meet those and be self-forgetting in the process. And it's the little acts of faithfulness like this, putting aside ourselves, that will cultivate a pattern in our hearts and aid us in forgetting ourselves even in life's more challenging circumstances. Next, I have communion with Christ. I've com- included this because our communion with Christ is really our lifeline for love. Sometimes our love tanks feel empty or feel weak. And a big reason for this is because we aren't prioritizing our daily communion with Christ. It is through communion with him and in his word that we daily experience God's love. And that is how we strengthen our friendship with him. It's personal and it's real. And we have to do this every day if we are going to remember to love. Christ endured the cross, dying and taking up his life again so that we could be restored from sin to a right relationship with him. He intended from all eternity for us to live with him. And you see, we can't show compassion. We can't show patience, forgiveness, or comfort, gentleness, or kindness, or faithfulness. These things that are the fruit of the Spirit in our life unless we first experience them from Christ himself. And we can't grow in them unless we continue deepening our knowledge of them as personal. Our communion with Christ fills us, tenderizes our hearts to love more and more, and keeps us from losing sight of the gospel and what God has done. And finally, to strengthen love, practice the one another's. This is our plug for the rest of the God abundantly provides for us in his word, equipping us with truth and commands for all situations that we face in life and in our friend. And one way he does this is through these one another commands. These specific commands will help us narrow the scope of love, since love is really all encompassed of what we do in Christ. The other one another's uh, will help us to see how we can form more specific and intentional habits of loving one another here in the body. And so this is what it takes to love one another. Let's review real quick. Our desire that we've talked about is to pursue and enjoy the blessings of faithful friendship to the glory of Christ here in our church and here in Boundland. We want the love in these friendships to be unmistakable as we live our lives with one another. And it serves, one, as a powerful witness of the gospel to the world around us, and also as a great encouragement to our hearts day in and day out. It's our joy. It picks us up um, when days are hard and enjoy life and fellowship with one another. The matchless love of Christ is our example and our motivation to lay down our lives for the good of others each day. And though it can be hard to get self out of the way, we have everything we need through union with Christ. And as we love, we can also be assured that we are really children. So let us be devoted to loving one another and press on in that together. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, thank you so much for your love and your kindness. You tell us that your steadfast love extends to the heavens and your faithfulness to the clouds. It is great beyond what our minds can comprehend. And Lord, you have shown us that in the cross. You have shown us this in Christ giving up his life, having the fullness of deity. He set aside himself in humility in order to love us and redeem us and to enable us to live a life of obedience and a life marked by his love. Lord, I pray that you would help us to keep our goal in mind of a faithful, joy-filled fellowship. And I pray that you would help us to be motivated to pursue love day in and day out as you show us the many ways that you have first loved us. And Lord, I pray even this week that we would begin thinking small, practical ways that we can cultivate a more loving heart for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name.